You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by the Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced. Have you ever wondered what happened to healthcare or Mexican food or nipples? No, you haven't. Not yet. But in the dark times to come, you just might. That's where Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced comes in. Each book in the series is a sweet, cynical, faux-children's book exploration of the problems faced by a dystopian future that could very well be ours. This is weird and devious and brutally hilarious satire. And the really brilliant kicker is that part of the proceeds from every sale go to a champion cause, including the likes of the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Violence Policy Center, and Equality Now, in an effort to keep the bleak and surreal prophecies included in their pages from ever coming to pass. Every three to four months, a new book is released, and they're available in both paperback or ebook form, purchasable either one by one or with a regular subscription. And if you go to whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant, you can get a $25 e-subscription right now, with $2 of each book going to the champion cause. That's $22 given away to great causes and three measly bucks for the 11 e-books. So go now to www.whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant to get your deal today. Again, that's www.whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant. The future will thank you while it still can. Martin Clarity was still asleep when noon struck on January 15th, 1919, 100 years ago today. He'd had a long night. Martin worked as a bartender in Boston's North End, and 1919 was a bustling time to be in the booze business. Just a year and a day from then, prohibition would begin, and alcohol would be illegal throughout the nation. And a year and a day was just not enough time for Bostonians to comfortably get their fill. So Martin had earned a little shut-eye. At just about 12.40, he was awoken. In a way, I think it's safe to say he had never been awoken before. In a way come to think of it, that it's pretty safe to say no one had ever been awoken before. There was a deafening boom and what sounded like machine gun fire. And, almost on top of that, a rushing sound, like rolling thunder, roaring his way. Before he could even get out of his third-floor bedroom, it was submerged, broken apart, 
carried away. Martin managed to jump onto his floating bed frame and just barely saved himself. On January 15th, 1919, 100 years ago today, Boston's North End was hit by an unthinkable tsunami. A 25-foot wave of molasses. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, a sticky situation. The roar that woke Martin Clowardy was the sound of 2.3 million gallons, roughly 26 million pounds of molasses careening through North End at 35 miles per hour. Let's take a moment to really live in the weirdness of this. Molasses. Yes, molasses. The sticky, sugary syrup known first and foremost for its slow, stubborn resistance to moving anywhere or doing anything. The notion of a tidal wave of molasses is so bizarre that you almost have to laugh. But the Great Boston Molasses Flood was no joke. A hundred yards wide and nearly three stories tall, the immediate power of the wave toppled buildings, crumbled elevated train lines, carried people, trucks, trains, and houses down several blocks of Commercial Street. Martin was able not only to ride the bed frame to safety himself, but to pilot it somehow to rescue his sister from the deluge too. But his mother and brother weren't so lucky. They were swallowed up and killed, along with several others, neighborhood residents and employees, including Maria D'Astasio, age 10, who was gathering firewood for her family with friends. She was fully overtaken by the molasses and quickly suffocated. Pasquale Iantasaka, also 10, was with her, but was killed instead by a railroad car that shot down the street and into his head before continuing its journey away from the epicenter. George Leahy, a 38-year-old firefighter, died when the second story of the firehouse collapsed onto the first. Once the wave settled, it left behind a pool of molasses half a mile wide and up to five feet deep. That pool almost immediately firmed up in the January cold, leaving people, horses, pets, and wreckage fixed as in amber. Rescuers arrived from nearby ships, from the Red Cross, from Boston Police, the Army, the Navy. They set up cordons, supply depots, warming centers, and a field hospital. For four days, rescuers attempted to slog through waist-deep molasses, retrieving bodies, euthanizing horses, and searching for survivors. In the end, many of the 21 dead were difficult to identify, having been so thoroughly covered and caked in the syrup. The last victim was found four months after the incident. He and his truck had been swept off into the harbor and drowned in the Atlantic. A further 150 were injured, and the damages totaled $100 million adjusted for inflation. The cleanup effort took hundreds of workers weeks to complete, an estimated 80,000 man-hours. Those workers tracked a sugary film all around the city. For months, everything in all of Boston was sticky to the touch. For years to come, North End residents claimed that on hot summer days, you could smell molasses in the streets. You may be wondering, you should be wondering, where did all this molasses come from? But if you'd have lived or worked in North End at the time, you'd have known. The tank that held it at United States Industrial Alcohol's Purity Distilling Company 
had towered nearly 60 feet high over the neighborhood and 90 feet across since it was constructed in 1915. So what had caused it to fail on a seemingly random January day almost four years later? United States Industrial Alcohol Company knew the answer. Terrorists. To understand why terrorists would want to bomb a molasses tank, we're going to have to examine two things about early 20th century America. The first one is easy enough, munitions. While today you and I might think about molasses as being chiefly used in disappointingly semi-sweet and difficult to chew cookies, back in 1919 it had two primary applications, booze and bombs. And it was primarily those things that interested the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Most of their molasses was being fermented and treated for the manufacture of gunpowder, dynamite, and nitroglycerin. And booze, like I said, but we'll get back to that. The other thing we have to understand about this moment in time is a lot more complicated. Anarchism. The history of American anarchism is so underreported and so contrary to our contemporary understanding of U.S. politics that it is frightfully hard to casually wrap your mind around. The anarchists of the late 19th and early 20th century don't fit neatly into our current partisan framework. In some ways, they look like hardline communists, in other ways like extreme right-wing libertarians. Many of them were radical sexual liberationists preaching free love and gender equality. There were union organizers, but also self-sufficiency advocates. And in perhaps the paradox most important to us for this story, they had associations both with pacifists and with violent guerrilla attacks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Johann Most was a German anarchist who emigrated to America and brought with him a philosophy called Propaganda of the Deed. The idea was that if you bombed and assassinated politicians, businesses, institutions, etc., you could demonstrate to the people that the government and corporations were not omnipotent and inspire the masses to rise up in revolution. In 1908, Selig Cohen threw a bomb in Union Square in New York. In 1914, 
Anarchists made at least three separate attempts on the life of John D. Rockefeller, including two bombings. In 1917, an anarchist bomb in Milwaukee killed nine policemen. And months after the molasses flood, a series of bombs, organized by Luigi Galliani, were mailed to the mayor of Seattle, a U.S. senator, a federal judge, and the attorney general. All of that is aside from Leon Czolgosz, a Polish anarchist who assassinated President William McKinley in 1901. In addition to legislators and mayors and AGs and presidents and robber barons, the anarchists had another preferred target during the 19-teens, World War I. There were bombings and attacks against several pro-war institutions and munition suppliers. So a giant tank of war-bound molasses in the heart of Boston was a pretty obvious target. When the victims and families of victims of the flood sought one of the nation's first class-action lawsuits against United States industrial alcohol, the company was galled. Surely, they couldn't be held responsible for the actions of bomb-chucking anarchists. The company was a victim in this all, too. There's another paradox about the anarchists of America to keep in mind, though. Yes, there were numerous riots, attacks, and bombings for which they rightly took the blame. But much, much more than that, they were an easy-bake, oven-ready scapegoat deployed by both politicians and companies to disguise misdeeds and kick up popular sentiment. The class-action lawsuit brought by the people of North End stretched out for five years, involving 921 witnesses and 1,500 exhibits. In the end, it uncovered a very different kind of terrorist. Not an anarchist, but a corporatist. Let's go back to 1915. The Great War was just gearing up, and Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distillery Company, the subsidiary of the United States Industrial Alcohol Company that ran the Boston site, bought a whole shipload of molasses from the Caribbean, hoping to sell it for explosives to the French or British armies. But only once he'd made the purchase did it occur to Arthur that he'd need some place to store the stuff. So he commissioned a company to build him a molasses tank. The molasses tank. Right away, Gel makes two mistakes. First of all, in order to skirt regulations and get moving on to construction as quickly as possible, he doesn't bother getting a building permit. Because the tank isn't a building, he argues that only the foundation has to be inspected and approved. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, he doesn't hire an engineer. It's just a tank, Gel thinks. I can design a tank. But it wasn't just a tank. It was the tank. 60 feet tall, 100 feet wide, 3 million gallons. It's not an above-ground pool, Arthur. It's a molasses skyscraper. Gel had no experience designing anything. None at all. It came out in trial that not only had he not drawn a blueprint for the tank, he didn't even know how to read a blueprint in the first place. Doing things the proper way would have been slower and more expensive. And not only was Jell short on time, he was a fucking cheapskate. He ordered the Ham and Steel Company, which he'd hired to build the thing, to use the cheapest and therefore flimsiest steel available. And it gets worse from there. Construction was stalled several times in December as Boston experienced two huge snowstorms. With his molasses fast on its way to town, Jell worked his contractors hard, at least one died during the building, and cut whatever corners he could find, including the proving. 
Ideally, with a tank like this, you want to test it by filling it with at least the same volume of water as you're expecting to hold in molasses. But that would take some time, and if the proving went badly, he'd be seriously shit out of luck. So Jell had the newly built, 60-foot-tall tank filled six inches deep. Six inches. For those listeners blessedly given to the metric system, that's not even up to the knee. The half foot of water holds, and Jell says, ta-da, and calls for the molasses. That the tank didn't immediately fall apart is sort of a miracle. That it lasted more than two years is stupefying. But those two years weren't without incident. During the trial, many witnesses were called who testified to some strange and disturbing events. For one, nearly everybody in North End had heard the tank creaking and moaning at one time or another. If you walked up close to it, you might hear it bubble or pound, and you'd definitely see the molasses. The stuff was seeping out constantly, in such quantities that a year after it was built, an engineer for the company reported to Arthur Gell that children were running up to the tank with buckets and sticks to collect free molasses for their families. The whole tank was stained around its rivets and seams. Arthur Gell's solution to this problem? He ordered the tank painted brown so that the leaks wouldn't show. Another engineer said he had seen the steel panels bowing and breathing and had informed Jell of his concerns. Meh, throw a little caulk on it, had been his approximate response. You might be thinking, then, that the failure of the tank was only a matter of time, and that's probably true. But there's still a whole other level of greed to explain the Great Molasses Flood. Fast forward to 1919, and the war is almost over. The demand for munitions-grade alcohol is waning, and the tank was nearly empty, down to less than 300,000 gallons. But suddenly, a new opportunity presented itself. Prohibition. Sure, folks might not be blasting one another anymore, but they were still getting blasted themselves. United States Industrial Alcohol Company gets a wild hair to start pumping out low-grade, high-octane swill to sell to all the desperate rummies looking to get one last glug of booze down their hooch holes. On January 13th, two days before the disaster, the steamship Molero offloaded more than two million gallons of molasses into the tank, filling it almost to the brim for only the fourth time since its construction. It was nearly zero degrees Fahrenheit outside. The next day, it jumped to around 40 degrees. The fresh, warm molasses mingled and fermented with the older stuff. The whole tank expanded with the rising temperature, increasing the volume of the syrup and lowering its viscosity, until finally, at 1240 on January 15, 1919, 100 years ago, a fatigue crack in the side of the 60-foot-high tank, already painted and caulked over, gave way spilling 3.2 million gallons of molasses onto the north end of Boston, killing 21, and dyeing the harbor water brown through July. Ultimately, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company was fined 600,000 bucks, about six and a half million in today's dollars. Each of the 126 plaintiffs was awarded around $7,000. The state of Massachusetts soon passed a number of regulatory reforms, which echoed state to state and around the country, requiring better oversight, permitting, and zoning for industry and commercial businesses. 
The Great Molasses Flood marked the end of the Wild West laissez-faire attitude that had allowed companies like United States Industrial Alcohol Company to operate in the first place, which, ironically, made all those falsely accused anarchists out there pretty darn happy. Music for today's episode from Anime is Trash, Blue Dot Sessions, and Lee Rosevere. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and share it widely. Thanks to everyone who supported the making of this season, especially our Constantine backers. A special shout-out today to Amanda Hallberg, to whom getting married was, against the spirit of the podcast, something Matt Hartwell definitely got right. We'll be back next week. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1886, eight anarchists were wrongfully convicted for throwing a bomb at police during the Haymarket Square riot, this has been The Constant. <laughs>